Welcome to Town Square. I'm Neil Milner, sitting in for Beth Ann Kozlovich. What can you say about politics in 2016? Well, a lot's been said already, much of it's self-serving, bizarre, or just plain wrong. Well, on today's show, we promise to do better, mainly because of our guest, Chuck Friedman. Chuck is a longtime Hawaii Democratic Party activist and strategist. He served in Governor John Y. Hayes' cabinet. He was one of the earliest organizers of the Obama presidential campaign in Hawaii. He's also been active in Senator Brian Schatz's campaign. Best of all, Chuck is able to step back and see the big picture. So get ready to call us about your political concerns and your ideas. The number is 941-3689 and... On the neighbor islands, one eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. Chuck, welcome to Town Square. Well, good to be here. Good. Listen, let's start by talking about the Trump campaign and especially your own perspective. You've been involved in presidential campaigns at a fairly sophisticated level before, and I wonder if you could tell us how you watched this campaign, how you followed it, and if you began to see certain things that maybe you saw that other people weren't talking about. A, f- a few quick stories. Uh, Mike Dukakis was the first presidential campaign I was really involved in up my nose, and it was because I was working with Governor Wahey, and Dukakis and he were fast friends. And and it was great to see Dukakis be sort of a policy-oriented guy. He was terrific in in what he knew about government and people, and, and on the merits of things, looked like a true winner for the country. I sat there at the Poly Pavilion, and watched as the reporter asked him what he would do if his wife were raped and how he turned it into a policy answer instead of an emotional one and began to realize at that moment that he was probably going to lose the election because he his emotional primacy kind of ran second to his desire to turn everything into policy. Bill Clinton got very much involved in that campaign. Again, uh, my contact with Governor Hay in part, but new Bill Clinton pretty well spent 45 minutes with him at a concert one time, of all the Bill, uh, Kenny G concert. Of Kenny's course, in Kenny town, G, yes. And sat on a mat with him at, 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 at a place called The Locks in, in uh, Seattle and and listened to him talk about the book by E.J. Dayon, Why Americans Hate Politics. This was before Bill had, Clinton had decided to run, but his feelings about bringing both ends of the spectrum together, which, of course, he was known for. And then, of course, there's there's President Obama. Who I was drawn in, actually, by Brian Schatz, who called me in 2006 when we were both looking for something better politically. And Brian said, what do you think? And we had a two-hour conversation about Barack Obama not only being good for the country but being good for Hawaii for many of the obvious reasons. So I've seen them come and go and watched somewhat with dismay as as a Democrat watching this this uh, campaign slip away. And we can talk about some of the reasons if you'd like. Well, d- tell me what, first of all, y- yes, I definitely want to hear that. Tell me what you began to see that made you see that it was slipping away because obviously until very late, the dominant analysis, including mine, uh, was that it wasn't slipping away. It was maybe getting closer, but that Trump really never was leading through all the way, if you follow the conventional thing. Yeah, and I won't be a Monday morning quarterback who Monday morning quarterbacks himself. I, I thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. Um, so I wasn't – I was a little nervous, but I wasn't, uh, I wasn't the soothsayer who saw what was going to happen. And I don't think anybody today really knows to, to detail what happened. But I think there were really quickly five, five drivers that, that 
that were in effect this election, this campaign, that were somewhat different than before. The first one was this sense that the old majority, which is primarily a, a, a white population in America, be, had increasingly seen themselves as victimized either by incompolarity and what's happening with the economy and them being left out of it or being disfavored by laws and mores where they somehow saw them losing out at the expense of somebody else. And whether you agree with that or not, that's where a lot of people were at. And you could see that they, they mobilized during the election and they supported can Donald I, Trump. Can I just ask you if you saw any of this coming? Because here's what seemed to be the case, that people said that if that group of folks were mobilized and there were a larger number out there than a lot of folks thought, that that would really carry the day for Trump. But they never seemed to be showing up in the polls. Did you? No, I, and I didn't see it either. And even the Republicans, when they did their postmortem after the last election, charted a course where they saw broadening their voice and, and increasing their, their demographic reach. That is not what uh, President-elect Trump did. He, he took a different course, and they stuck to it, and they believed in it. And I can't really say that I saw that as being a winning strategy, but that's what happened. I think what we underestimated was just how viscerally a lot of the old majority uh, voters out there felt about being left out and just how much sock they had left, which was enough to win the election. Go on with your list. Uh, it, it, Trumpism. Uh, it, it was a candidacy that broke all the old rules. We all sat, watched it going on, rules of civility, respect for the facts, uh, sort of, you know, every politician has a large ego. His was an unbounded one, and, and but that Trumpism really changed the board a lot, too. I think the standards began to change, and as they changed, he built off of that. His, his campaign built off of that, whereas uh, Hillary, who was the next factor, the third factor, Stuck to the rules, um, somewhat like Mike Dukakis did, and sort of demonstrated in the end that pure merit is not always meritorious. Uh, fourth issue was the news media, which I think there are two parts to that. First was uh, the notion that the news media has changed, that that it's become much more, particularly television, much more entertainment-oriented. A lot of campaign wannabes, on, on, on especially on cable news, really talking about more what they would be doing in the campaign as opposed to what the candidates were really saying and asking a good follow-up question. That was sort of a sickness. I call it the uh, where-are-you-now Walter Cronkite syndrome. Um, second part of the media issue was the emergence of web-based communications, uh, the, the velocity uh, as opposed to to quality sometimes, everything from Politico to chat rooms to fake news. I mean, it was an immense factor and one that I'd like to talk about a little more later. And the, the fifth, the fifth is, is the hacking and the dissemination of information to influence the outcome of an election by a foreign country. Hard to say how much that affected the campaign. I think discussions about whether it was to hurt Hillary or not are sort of futile and silly at this point. But what's very real is that it was an intentional attack, at a minimum, on the, the, the very integrity of democracy. Those pieces really made it a different kind of election. Would you now, if you were involved in a presidential campaign, approach it differently? Well, I, I think that's what everybody's asking themselves. And if you, if you try to run it the, the same way next time, 
you're, you're, you know, you're probably cruising for a bruising. But I will say this, Neil. I was driving down in the car thinking about, okay, so what's the same about the past? And the same about the past, whether it was uh, Bill Clinton challenging a one-term president by saying it's the economy, stupid, or whether it was Barack Obama facing down John McCain, who was saying at this moment of a terrible depression that it's McCain was sort of saying it's a cycle that we're going through, and and Obama was saying heck no. Uh, and this time, it was the again the economic message of of of, uh, the, of the president elect. Who who really always stuck to this notion that he got it that people were hurting, and um, that he was going to fix it, and so it's odd how that you know, nothing comes down to a single message, but other than times of war, I think if you don't have a connective economic message, you're you're probably not going to be president of the United States. That's it's interesting how much the uh, Trump style. Uh, kind of deflected from that, the kind of importance of that, I think, including maybe even with the Democratic candidate. We're here with Chuck Friedman, and remember, you can give us a call with your comments or questions, 941-3689, or on the neighbor islands, 1-877-941-3689. Look, as far as social media is concerned, was it a quantum leap? Because I know from the, the, the Obama campaign's from 2008 on, we're really cutting edge in terms of the use of social media and um, and as part of their very sophisticated campaigns that they ran. So what's the difference here? The difference is the myth of the Red Queen, uh, which if you, if you know from your light reading, uh, the myth of the Red Queen is that in Alice in Wonderland, when Alice and the Queen were both running and they were staying even and they couldn't figure out why nobody was winning, that was because... Everything around them was moving with them. And it's it's the same notion that, you know, if you're a brown bear in the middle of the Arctic trying to catch a white seal, eventually that brown bear is going to turn by nature into a white bear. So everything antes up. Everything gets bigger. I think the the, the notion that that, uh, back in 2008 when President Obama was using social media – it was a, a, a little tiny drop of water compared to the ocean that we were dealing with today, and an ocean that nobody knew how to navigate. Nobody even knew what was really going on, but it was, it was abundant, and the volume of it, I think, really changed the outcome. Uh, we were all troubled by fake news and the, those sort of issues, which, which uh, were, were part of this, this uh, medium. And it was, I think it was much more overwhelming and out of control in the sense that it was unpredictable. But those who knew how to manage chaos and, and had a sense of that out of control could be used for their control benefited. Well, one of the things that's starting to come out now in the post-election analysis is the sophistication that the Trump people had in using big data and in using social media. You know, they, the the media got so much, and, and most of us analysts got so much into the fact that, that Trump was an outlier. He didn't know how to run a campaign. He was inexperienced. He wasn't doing what all the other ones were. He wasn't spending a lot of money on TV. He wasn't raising a lot of funds. It's starting to show up now that they were able to do certain kinds of things that are much more associated with sophisticated campaigns. For example, looking at favorite television programs around the country and associating that, as you can, with political preferences and then targeting 
very clearly some of the, the Duck Dynasty people, for example, right. people who watch Duck Dynasty. And more and more it's coming out that big surprise. He knew what he was doing. And and um, I think you're going to find more of that come on. And I think we'll all be sort of scratching our heads about the power of 140 characters. But he certainly, okay. and to this day, seems to be able to take a position in the morning, a position in the middle of the day, and a position in the evening on the same thing with them being different positions, <laughs> but them all sort of registering with different groups. And it's all very digestible because it's so short. Uh, I don't think the Democrats had a clue about how to use that. And maybe they even thought it, there was something sort of uncivil about it. I'm going to ask you in a little while how you would have felt uh, or you would have worked if you had been his campaign manager. But first, we've got a couple of calls. William from Kailua Kona. Go ahead, William. Hello. Um, I, I actually, my comment's pretty simple. I, I actually just wanted to comment on the fact that I believe, at least for myself, and, and I think that uh, I know a few people that this would uh, also apply to, that one of the things that really turned people towards Trump and away from not Hillary Clinton necessarily, but the Democratic Party, is uh, the distrust that was already prevalent in our, our society towards government, but was really exacerbated by uh, the emails that came out regarding the way that the Democratic Party had manipulated everything and shut Bernie Sanders out. Uh, I think that that's something that it, in this conversation you really didn't touch on it as, as much as I think the importance of that was. And uh, I think in the national conversation as well, it's kind of being missed that, that you know, above everything else, the, the mistrust towards government and our elected officials is at an all-time high. And regardless of how the information got to which is kind of where a lot of media and a lot of the, uh, the pundits have focused. Uh, really, for the average person, I think a lot of us uh, were less concerned about that in, in, in a lot of respects uh, compared to how we feel about the, uh, the mistrust that that sowed with the population. Thanks for uh, your comments. Yeah, William, let's, let's give Chuck a chance to answer that or to talk about it. Well, I think you're right. I, I think that... Uh, the public getting a chance to see the sausage sausage making of the political process was was a pretty frightful uh, thing. And it's interesting that you say the source was of less of a concern to them than what than what was actually being revealed. I think you've got to be you've got to be right about that in the, in the way the the voting went and how much it seemed to have have hurt the integrity of the of the of the Clinton campaign. I do think in the light of day, we have to be as equally as concerned, if not more concerned, about the fact today that it was it was a form of espionage uh, by by foreign sources. We have a call from Paul and Maui. Paul, go ahead. Aloha. Um, the thing that I want to talk to you guys about is the fact that this election was just like 1968. In 1968, the baby boomers came knocking on the door of the Democratic Party with Gene McCarthy, and the Democratic Party did exactly what they did to the millennials this time. They slammed the door in our faces. And so we said, okay, that's fine. We're just going to take a, a walk on this election, and we got Richard Nixon. Um, this time, the millennials did the exact same thing. They sat it out. The millennials were the biggest generation. The Democrats had an opportunity to institutionalize themselves 
as the majority party for the next 50 years, and they chose a different, a different path, and they nominated the worst candidate, the candidate who everybody knew could not win, and then they just sat it out, and they, lobbed, they threw the bomb, basically, and said, okay, we're, we're not going to do the lesser of two evils this time. We're not going to hold our nose and vote for somebody that we don't want to vote for. We're just going to sit it out, and we're going to let you guys have the guy who everybody um, doesn't want. And so I think a lot of us saw what was going to happen, that Trump was going to win. We knew that Hillary was going to lose. And, um, and it, was, it was terrible. It's a terrible thing, obviously. But the fact is, is that um, that's what happened. The millennials sat it out, just like the boomers did in 1968. Chuck, do you think that uh, Bernie Sanders could have won? Well, I want to just say that I was a captain of, in the Lehigh Valley of the Get Clean for Gene campaign in actually 1967. So I was there for yeah, that. We, <laughs> and, I, I went clean for Gene, too, in uh, New Hampshire, as a matter of fact. There you go. Well, I was in Pennsylvania, and you were in New Hampshire. I was organizing and, uh, in I was Iowa. In, I, was in, I was in Indiana, and I was in Chicago, too. Oh, you were? Oh, well. Yes. We should bring you in sometime. We'll do an old an old uh, Democratic Party activist show. But yeah. anyway, Chuck, uh, go ahead. Our bumper sticker could be, Oh, How the Mighty Have Fallen. Uh, but <laughs> or we're still alive to talk about it. I appreciate the sentiment of what you're saying. Um, I don't know if, if uh, it, it, it's, it's really impossible to say what would have happened if Bernie had been the candidate instead of instead of Hillary. And I told myself I wasn't going to knock Republicans too much during this hour. But we we do have to understand that they were ready to eviscerate whoever it was the 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 Democrats nominated. And I don't want to say the Democrats are all a bunch of good guys and play clean and everything, because obviously you've pointed out to the emails the, divulging some some pretty poor behaviors on the part of Democrats. But I I think whoever had been nominated by the by the Democrats, the Republicans were really quite ready to pull out the stops, regardless of who that was. But I do think your point about about Bernie and Eugene and candidates who stand for uh, being on the edge of things and, and pushing forward. Obama really had that element to him, that that is exactly. more in the that's more in the spirit of what Democrats are about. And Hillary just had a hard time on the basis of a 30 year history, even though a lot of the things she had done during those 30 years, I, I would argue with you a little bit, were really pretty, pretty, it was pretty good stuff. Uh, but she, but oh, she I, had the way. I totally agree. Yeah, she, I, I don't disagree with you about that at all. I just, I just knew, I, I just know that she was the worst candidate, and that she, she just had so many negatives that were going for her that she could never win. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for your call. And you know, the the, the moral of the story is you got to build the bench. You know, and I don't know how the Democrats nationally are going to do that. But I think you, we were, we had really fairly slim pickings this time. As did the Republicans, frankly. I mean, well, one they of the had reasons, a lot of people who thought they could be president. Well, there were seventeen I didn't of them. Say they had a small bench. I said they didn't have a good bench. There you go. Day, and yeah. I think there's a difference. Let's yeah. talk about this: the the uh, Sanders and the progressive wing for a while. I was going to do this in regard to this state, but let's do it generally also. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, to the Democratic Party in regard to the difference between the centrist and the progressive wing? Does this change that dynamic at all? Tough question. That, that 
dichotomy's been there for as long as yes. I've been a Democrat. So we start with the premise Including that— Including the elections that we were just talking about. All the, the way back 60s, to yeah. the first time I was involved with campaigns. Um, so the dynamic, the broad dynamic hasn't changed. The specifics of it have. And one of the specifics that's changed, Neil, is is the way in which folks can communicate to one another— the real question is what happens to the party structures? It's true for Republicans as well as Democrats. I mean, their party was on the rocks, too, and it'll be interesting to see what happens as they try to group around Trump and whether that all works or not. But for the Democrats, I think the real question is how do you mobilize the broadest bunch of people and keep them interactive, not fleeing to their own separate chat rooms, but actually talking to one one another and pounding out, a belief system that they can all hold to. That's the challenge. I, I, I mean, I don't really have the answer. But I think if we do it the way we've been doing it, uh, it's going to get tougher and tougher to win. We have another call. Sachi from Kailua Kona. Go ahead, please. Hi there. Yeah, Hi. I was just trying to find this quote from George Washington. Um, basically, what I would like to say is I've been kind of not feeling well, so I've been obsessed with really researching what's going on. And um, there, I'll tell you something. If you look back in history, um, everything that, that Donald Trump has been doing is deliberate. Um, if you look at uh, Hitler's playbook and his propaganda minister, Goebbels, it was clearly lie, 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 and keep lying and lie about lying, contradict yourself, accuse the other person of what you're... I mean, it, it, I, I think everything that he's done from the beginning was absolutely the fox um, outsmarting the chickens. You know what I mean? Sure. Thanks. That's an important message, Sachi, particularly since I can actually hear the chickens behind you <laughs> crowing away. They clearly agree with you. Now, I... I don't know what the George Washington quote was, but I, I think if your point is that this is sort of a Machiavellian approach to to democracy, and uh, I think you're 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 dangerously uh, correct. And the question becomes for all the institutions that help shape democracy, from the elected officials to the parties to the news media and to the general public, what kind of personal responsibility are we going to take? to ensure that lies don't beget lies. You know, there was a lot of studies and a lot of polls and a lot of kind of interesting writing about what Trump is and how he fits psychologically and who he compares to as a propagandist. In retrospect now, it seems to me that that was interesting, and I spent a lot of time looking at that stuff, but it sort of missed what you were saying before, that here was a guy who would say anything that he wanted to say because that's the way he does his business and was able to appeal to people primarily for economic reasons, whether they were more authoritarian, which does the research show they are, whether more Trump voters are more racist than others, which the research show they are. At the, at the bottom of it, it didn't seem to be about that so much, that there were other reasons. Yeah, he was, he was forgiven a lot. Uh, and it and he he never yielded from his baseline messages. He would walk them back a tiny bit without even meaning make it sound like he was walking them back. And he, by and large, got away with it through the Republican primary. He got away with it almost entirely because I think the news media was so much, with the exception of, of several newspapers, but television and the and the, certainly the cable news 
were so much into the entertainment factor of Donald Trump that they allowed this this new set of standards to sort of slip in. Oh, he got a disproportionate amount of coverage in the primaries for sure. They People monitored that and tracked that. Um, and clearly that was the case. And the media was getting a lot of criticism for that, right? And they say, well, he's the news guy. I mean, he's yeah, the one that's yeah. making it, you know, that's making the news. So let me get back to the – let me push you a little bit more on the on the Sanders thing. There was a book written a couple of years ago about the aftermath of the Obama presidential campaigns because it was – because those campaigns were based so much on a community organizing model. And part of what was to come of that was that these people who learned how to be community organizers as part of their campaigning, and they really operated in different ways, would emerge as kind of young Democratic leaders that they would produce – go back to the grassroots once the campaign was over and, and do that. You get any sense that that's happened? Well, the whole community, it's interesting. Community organization's a funny word. If you remember the last election, the one before this yeah. one, uh, the reelection campaign in particular, and even even the first campaign for Obama, community organization sort of became a dirty word, and Saul Alinsky was like a voice from hell. And the notion behind community organization is basically ownership, that you change the ownership structure from from top down to bottom up. And I think that the, the challenge with that is how much work it takes and that running across it, running across the issue of community organization is how well or badly you use social media and the new tools of communication. And Trump I, did none of this. Trump didn't do the, you know, the, that kind of grassroots kind of organization. At no, all. but he had a tremendous capacity apparently to manage social media and yes. short messages his way. And I I don't think they were trying to get people to to believe that they owned the vision of Donald Trump. They were in a way trying to get people to under to to connect with Donald Trump in the sense that he got what they were going through and he could fix it. End of story. And they pounded away on that nail victoriously. We have another call from Michelle in uh, Kaneohe. Hey, Michelle, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Hi. Uh, I'm not going to make any bones about it. I'm terrified of this presidency, and I am really concerned with uh, Congress and the Senate both being controlled by Republicans now. Are they going to be able to rein in the uh, Twitter-in-chief, and keep his fingers away from the nuclear codes. He has promised us a new arms race, and uh, I just hate to see what happens if he really tinks off somebody like the, the other crazy in North Korea. And his bromance with Putin just uh, makes my hair stand on end. Yeah. And I'll take my answers off. Air. Thank you so Thanks. much Thanks, for letting Michelle. Well, I, I, Michelle, I think the – um, to add to your misery, uh, the, the appointments he's making, at, at least in the, some of the areas of the appointments that he's making, are also a reason for concern. Uh, Scott Pruitt is being nominated for the environmental – to head the Environmental Protection Agency, and he's got – uh, a history of suing the Environmental Protection Agency, and I don't know if he, I, I think he's pretty much a climate change denier. He 
keeps questioning the science behind climate change, and he's going to be heading up the EPA just as an example. Uh, there are others. Um, Tom Price, uh, uh, Health and Human Services, has really a, a, a perfect record uh, against the reproductive rights of women. So uh, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be quite a table to deal with. But I think that, I hope that uh, we've got at least Democrats in, 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 the, in the Senate and maybe some, maybe a couple of Republicans who will be voices of reason when the chips are really down. But we've never seen anything like this in our lifetimes. And I'm not sure even if you went back through all of American history where there's been much comparable to this, maybe Andrew Jackson or somebody, but, but uh, I don't have a simple answer for you on that. I think I, I, but I don't think we can just back off. I think we have to, we have to stay in tune with what's going on. I think we, it's, it's perfectly fine to, to applaud uh, the incoming president if the Oval Office, pun intended, rounds him out and he does some things that that are, are are more moderate and in keeping with the with what, where we like to see the country go, but I think we got to be vigilant. I'd like to extend an invitation here. You've probably noticed that everyone who calls is a is anti-Trump so far and a, a Trump fear. And I just want to point out to you, folks out there, that about twenty-five percent, a little higher, of people who voted in Hawaii voted for Donald Trump. Some of the research that showed up recently has suggested that one of the reasons that Trump votes were underestimated in the polls is because people who are Trump voters either wouldn't say it or were lying about it. They worried about the kind of social stigma. Don't worry about it on this show. (laughs) Give us a call. We're not going to bite. It's pretty clear that we are left of center, but this show is to bring out your voice, and we're not here to tell you you're wrong. We want to learn what you have to say. So if there's anybody out there who's a little worried about that and did vote for Donald Trump, give us a call. I will tell you that I I go to a gym which will remain nameless but has a men's locker room, and no, it's not going to be uh, bad things about women. But I do listen to the guys in there, and they're 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 a relatively affluent bunch of people, and uh, they are very strong supporters of of Donald Trump. The news sources that I find offensive, they think are just fine and dandy, and they it's not even a matter of forgiveness with them. They they had a, a just an immediate disdain for Hillary Clinton. Almost visceral, kind of hard to explain it, except it was very real. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to me to be hard to explain. We had the same thing for George Bush and so on. The Republicans have been demonizing Hillary Clinton, and she's been doing some of her own demonizing yeah. for twenty or twenty-five years. Remember that that most Republicans. We're not talking about miners in Kentucky or people in my home state up in rural Wisconsin. Most Republicans voted for Trump, and it was getting more and more in that direction as time went on. People stick with their parties, and what I think you're seeing is people like that. You're not working out in the gym with um, disaffected blue-collar workers for the most part. Yeah, I'm I'm reading a book right now called Sapiens. Um, it's a nonfiction piece, and I suddenly can't remember the—, the uh, is an he's an Israeli author, but anyway, uh, his name, and 
it's a book. It's a lot like Guns, Germs, and Steels and sort of the social mm-hmm. history books. But one of the the big premise of the book is that we're the only animal that has the ability to, to make a concept out of something and work from it. Other animals, you, you, you go down to the river, you can catch fish, or look out, you might get eaten by a crocodile. I mean, there's, there's some pretty basic learning that goes on, but it's all very real. We have these imagined realities, and these imagined realities grow into our democracy and government governance. They bl- grow into our religious beliefs. They're they're not real in the sense that they're on the they're not like gravity or the aging process. And I think what you just become to realize that people wed themselves to this imagined reality, and once they've once they are living by it. It's very, very difficult to get people to change their thinking. Turns out that it's harder to get liberals to change than conservatives. At least the research on moral psychology shows that, that, that liberals have an, a much harder time even conceptualizing what conservatives believe, much less yeah. accepting them. We have another call, Grace from Curtistown. Go ahead, Grace. I am, I'm a Democrat. I voted for Trump, and it's because... He kept on saying what everybody's been thinking. The emperor has no clothes. The sausage-making that you were referring to earlier of politics, I, too, was a come-clean for Gene. <laughs> I, too, was at the Democratic Convention. And, um, and it, you know, I didn't like Hillary. I was going to vote for her in 2008. And a lot of the millennials that I spoke to, they didn't want Hillary. No how, no way. And, yeah, I think people just said, okay, Republicans are growing, um, you know, tax in the road and uh, keeping all kinds of things from going through for President Obama, who I admire. And I think people are saying, well, Republicans, you've got it all now, baby. Put up or shut up. So, Grace, did you talk about your uh, the fact you were going to vote for Trump or that you did vote for Trump with friends and neighbors? Oh, <laughs> I was in Bernie country. Actually, I really liked Bernie. And I think, it, you know, I, I would have voted for none of the above. But being a little bit of an anarchist from 1968, I'm sitting there going, you know what? I didn't feel that Hillary was going to win. And I'm just going, well, let's just see what comes out of the meat grinder. <laughs> and I know he's a real scary people that everybody. I'm kind of concerned. But I and but I'm not going to cry in my milk, you know. I'm not going to sit there and, and whine and fuel. He is who he is. He is our president. And if we can't survive this, then as a country, we got real troubles, real a lot of trouble. Thanks for your call, Grace. See if You're Chuck welcome. has anything to say. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Grace. I'm wondering how Eugene McCarthy lost in 1968. (laughs) (laughs) So many of us who were for him back then. Uh, I I think we have to put on our big— We actually know how he lost. We we do know how he lost. We have to put on—you're right. Grace is right. we got to put on our big boy pants at this point. We know who won. Uh, We know who's president. Uh, I'm— hoping that somehow he grows into the office more than we have seen evidence of in the past in terms of his own evolution. But it must really be something to be president of the United States, walk in there one day and realize it's your job. 
I am concerned that the people he's chosen around him, and many of them seem to be so ideologically set in a direction that's very different than than uh, than any democratic value that we've, we've talked about so far. Uh, I don't have the answer, uh, Grace. I, I give you credit for at least stepping forward. So what are you going to do politically or socially in the aftermath of this? You personally, then we'll talk maybe a little bit more about strategies. Here's what I think has to happen. I think what has to happen is that that the, in, in Congress, uh, those who are there, uh, even though they're in the minority now, have to do a responsible, personally responsible job, not just to be political about things, but actually make sure that the wheels of democracy are still moving forward. And I and I I, I have respect for the okay, I I work for a United States Senator, and I know he'll try to do that. I think at the same time, though, that. There has to be some sort of flank uh, interaction as well that that all the institutions in America that are out there to to move us forward have to continue to engage and not back off on any of these issues that we have said were so critical to us just because we now don't have the ball in our court. Uh, now is the time that that tests our tenacity. So how does that how does that play out in Hawaii? How does the Hawaii delegation respond? Uh, you know Senator Schatz maybe better than others. And how do people, let's say, to the left of center, uh, Democrats respond? Um, or how do people who are not normally involved in politics respond? Well, I think one thing Hawaii can continue to do in terms of its own politics is not necessarily support Democrats, but but go the distance in terms of what we're doing out here in in everything from from clean energy to 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 trying to pr- really protect the environment to protecting social justice to living tolerance uh and and not giving in to the what seem to be the current whims of the country so i do think that i mean it sounds kind of corny but i think that Hawaii is an ever important model in how things work, and it's not like everybody's going to be looking to us for answers. But they're going to have to look somewhere. I, I also think that, along with that, I'm going to change things a little bit. I think the news media has to decide what it's going to do in terms of its own accountability uh, to the public, because they've mishandled a lot of the election. And and the campaign, the 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 inability to ask follow up questions, the tendency to to follow to follow trends that were reported to them by their experts, as opposed to their own reporting instincts. I think all that has to change. We have a call from Larry from the Big Island. Larry, aloha, aloha. So I'm a lifetime Democratic voter. I went Libertarian straight down the ticket because. Oh, because Hillary Clinton would be president over my dead body. Never. Is there a particular reason or a series well, of reasons? The uh, the general zeitgeist where we know too much about her, um, for one. And I find her sense of entitlement uh, unacceptable. She She just expected to be president too much. Something like that. Was there a single thing, a single thing she did or said that particularly bothered you? Oh, well, her response to the emails 
uh, her inability to give us any explanation for why she did that. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, I considered the ultimate goal for the private email server to be stronger IP rights when she writes her memoirs. Very trivial reason to <laughs> do that, but I think that's why she did it, and she never explained herself. Well, I think the fact that there's that explanation from you, which I had not heard before, which is as plausible as anything else, by the way. I'm not demeaning it. I think the fact that you still think that that's a a possibility, it it does sort of uh, support your argument that she never explained herself sufficiently, at least not in a way that that, uh, could change your mind about what she was thinking and saying. It's interesting because I always – I mean, I I think she explained it badly – but I also thought there was sort of a disproportionate weight put on how serious a how serious an error it was. It was a it was a big mistake, but even the FBI said it wasn't uh, criminal, and yet it I persisted. Did, I as did an not issue. consider it criminal. I did not actually consider it that big a deal. But her unwillingness to be upfront with us uh-huh. was unacceptable. Okay. Okay. Thanks for the call, Norm Good. from McCulley. Norm, you there? Hi. Hi. Yes. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. I uh, have been a lifelong Democrat from a very, very liberal family, and I reluctantly, just by a hair, voted for Hillary Clinton in this election. Um, but I probably will not identify myself with the Democratic Party anymore. And I think some of the reasons include uh, what I feel is their kind of pandering to uh, a lot of us and, uh, you know, having movie stars and rock stars mm-hmm. and people like that tell us why we should vote for Hillary. Um, I don't appreciate, uh, you know, the kind of assuming that we're not smart enough to make up our own minds and to just give us the facts. I'm also blaming the media a little bit for their coverage, which you discussed. Um, I think that um, they've been chasing, you know, uh, big stories and, you know, uh, uh, they just aren't focusing enough on the facts and letting us voters be, in t- assuming that we're intelligent enough to make up our own mind. And I, I just kind of feel like the Democratic Party has become just as elitist as any of the very wealthy uh, movers and shakers in the Republican Party, and I really don't see very much difference between the two parties at this point. So I also am probably going to be going libertarian, just like the previous caller. It's You know, there, there's no question that the Democratic Party is more elitist. You're using the word in a pejorative way. It's become the party of the highly educated and the more wealthy. Actually, yeah. right. So that's, and yeah. some of us so, are not, you know, some of us uh, are professionals, but we may not be as highly educated as others. And I think there's a lot of people that are very hardworking that do believe in many of the ideals of the Democratic Party, but they don't appreciate that they haven't been, uh, that people didn't actually come out to their communities and talk to them. And as much of a blowhard as I think that Donald Trump is, he got one thing right, and that's that he went to a lot of communities, and he didn't just assume that he had uh, people's votes in the bag. And I think that's a huge mistake that the Democratic Party made in this election. Thanks for your call, Norm. Chuck? No, I, 
I think it's kind of hard to – I hope you, as a Democrat, you give that a second thought. But I think that what has happened in politics is the parties The parties are are structures that have been born from themselves and really haven't grown up with the times and haven't done the outreach they need to. And, and uh, I, I would pretty much agree with you uh, that that is – that's an issue. Pretty disorienting, isn't it? I mean, we both grow up about the same time when the Democratic Party was clearly there was a collection of liberals and and there was this solid blue collar, steadily working uh, group that was really with, with big unions that was the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. Heart and soul, they were that's that's how you won. Yeah, I I, I agree. And it makes you know as as I listened to uh, I've forgotten his name, a gentleman just spoke. Uh, you know that is a disheartening that is a disheartening issue, and and it may be that the means by which uh, the Democratic Party is communicating, uh, the means are failing, uh, they're not keeping up with the times. But if the alternative is 143 characters uh, and just a lot of anger, um, I don't know how far that's going to get you either. It's not a rhetorical question anymore. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, you're listening to Town Square. Our guest is Chuck Friedman. The number to call for comments or questions is 941-3689 or on the neighbor islands, one 941 3689 What do you think the future of, of the political parties are in this state? Let's start with the Republican Party. Everybody's always willing to comment about the Republican Party, <laughs> probably because they don't have much to say. Uh, about themselves. What's going to happen in the age of Trump? Is that going to energize the party here? Well, I'm old enough to remember some really powerful Republicans in the state, the Scotchy Hendersons and the Mary Georges and Fred Hemings and Mike Liu and Barbara Maramoto. These were folks who, and it was quite a bandwidth. I mean, when you think about Mary, people don't remember Mary Georges anymore, but uh, or most people don't. I do. She was a wonderful kind of libertarian Republican who fought for due process, open government, um, very legitimately, not not crowing or complaining, but in the hunt on these things. And then you had somebody like Senator Henderson from the Big Island who was a businessman's businessman, and yet the Democrats would go see him when they when they needed a reality check, and he would give it to them. So I think the problem with the Republican Party out here is bandwidth, that they've they've had a hard time finding a, a range of people to run within the party who represent a cross-section of the community. Not that they have to be one thing, but that they can be basically Republican in their their viewpoint, but can be very different, different kinds of people and how they interact. That's somehow been lost, not entirely, but largely. Um, and then there are some wonderful Republicans who don't stay Republicans for too long here. They, they change parties. So I don't have a, a, an answer for them, but I think that, that if you want a strong political system, you do need two political parties. And what the Republicans need is, 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 a, is a strategy that allows a breadth of candidates to run for them. Um, Actually, you did have an answer. Your answer a few years ago was the multiple-member district. Yeah, uh, you, well, you remember you, that. You, yes, you, I remember you Googled that. me. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think the, the worst thing that happened in this state in terms of what happened politically is the elimination of multi, multi-member districts, uh, which were 
ruled illegal or, I guess, unconstitutional. Unconstitutional, yes. Uh, and for those of folks who don't know what that is, you you have a large House district with more than one House member representing the district because of the size of the district. And the advantage that it gave is that maybe there was sort of one kingpin type who was always uh, winning, but then there was a, a second seat, and you had a lot of pretty extraordinary people end up running Republicans and Democrats, sort of somewhat counterculture types of people. I think Ben, I think Ben Cayetano was the the, the prodigy of a of a two uh, of a multi member district. When it all became single member in nature, they became to me, and I'm probably get a finger cut off here, like little fiefdoms, you know, sort of ruled by uh, by an individual as opposed to there being some competition within the district. And I think that was really bad for things. It was interesting because the Republicans as a party were calling for the end of multi-member districts. They brought the lawsuit. They brought the lawsuit. And, you know, the, the, things have been downhill since then as far as the Republican Party goes. So, yeah, I I would – but I would hope the Republicans – don't necessarily model themselves after but Trump, but the same way that Hawaii Democrats have to hang in there and represent a future, I think Hawaii Republicans need to find a way to say we can be a party of bandwidth. We can have breadth across this party in terms of our candidates, uh, but still uh, reflect baseline Republican principles that work in a Hawaii way. And I'm sure they want to do that. I'm sure they're trying to do that. But these haven't been – recent years have not been good years for Well, they lose when they try to do that and they lose when they don't try to do that. That's kind of – you know, our Republican candidates, Linda Lingle is a good example. She's she's much more conservative when she's on the mainland than she is here. And and Charles DeJoux is the same way. These are kind of right of center – they're conservative candidates who run toward the center a little bit more partially because they're not that rigid and also because they think that's where the votes are, but you still lose. I never saw Governor Lingle as being really right. If, if you were saying she was sort of, I, I think she was a sort of a, a moderate Republican by mainland styles. And and here she would be a little more moderate, a, a little right. a little more left uh, because, of course, the population was that way. Um, but even with her for eight years, they were unable to sort of build a base underneath her. And, and you know, no, this is true for people running for, for, for the Democratic Party nationally, and it's true for the Republican Party locally. There needs to be a way to build better benches within within the system. More young people, more people who get experience and can be viable candidates through time can move through the process. I'm not saying you need a su- successor kind of planning, but 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 uh, something close to that. I wonder what they're. What they and, and again, it's in some ways not a fair question for us to discuss without someone here who is a Republican. Not that we'll treat them unfairly; we just don't know. But I wonder what the party officials here, who really were not all that well, I guess I would call them clueless about the Trump phenomenon. What they now, if anything, think that they have to learn from this phenomenon in terms of building the party here. Yeah, I'd like I'd like to be the fly on that wall, but. I, but, but I think, you, you know, if can, they're smart, can, if they're smart, not smart, if they're if they're if they're determined and realistic about it, they'll say to themselves that Trump won in an idiosyncratic kind of way, 
we don't necessarily want to use that as the single model for how to win because then it just becomes an old model that doesn't work. But that we have to be in a, you know, Trump, if nothing else, if you want to be positive about what he did, was innovative in the way he approached this. And, and innovation may be the key for Democrats nationally and for Republicans locally. We have a call from Marty from Maui. Marty, go ahead. Hello, Neil. Hi. I'm a former student of yours from back in the 1980s, back when I used to take classes with you and Ira Roeder. Oh, man, that's going back. Yes, it is. But I'm calling from Maui basically uh, to talk about the recent election and how I think it follows the pattern of what used to be preached there at the political science department about what was called Kondratiev long wave cycle theory. Now, for the listeners out there, this basically says that politics may vacillate slightly from, you know, one side to the other of the political spectrum, and it may start out with minor vacillations, and then these vacillations start growing and becoming more and more extreme. I tend to think that the results of this last election represent that both parties, Republican and Democrat, have just gravitated to the far end of the political spectrum to where we just will vote for anybody, even the devil incarnate, whether it wears pants or a dress, simply to oppose the other side. And this, what we have here, is simply a manifestation of that. Now, hopefully, whoever, you know, Donald Trump uh, here may be a one-term president, but hopefully the next round of presidential elections, the parties come to their senses and start fielding a candidate more towards the middle ground that represents all Americans. Well, there's a the, the the book that Bill Clinton at the Locks in Seattle during a Kenny G concert told me to read was Why Americans Hate Politics by E. J. Dion. And one of the chapter and I did, and it's and it's a book that talks about that kind of uh, dynamic. And one of the chapters of the book talks about the dread and the yearning that goes all the way back to the beginning of democracy, the dread being that government is going to take over and, and intervene your, into your life in ways that it, 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 it shouldn't. And it was a fear that came from the, the, having British kings. The yearning, on the other hand, is that there's a, there is a common good, that we can work toward the better of it, the better for it. And John Kennedy you know, John Kennedy, you know, ask not what your your country can do for you, but what you could do for your country. That would be the yearning side. The dread side would be the state motto of New Hampshire, which is live free or die. And those always have been tensions that work. And the question is, are we going to, another way of saying what you just did, are we going to pull to the extremes of the tensions or are we going to try to find ways to come to enough consensus so that we can, you know, have a more moderate but but moving forward kind of government. Our final call is from Arius from Maui. Go ahead, Arius. We, we just got a little bit of time, so if you can make your comment or question brief. You bet. Um, Thanks. Yeah, it's not from Maui. It's from Kauai. Oh, Kauai. I'm sorry. Yeah, and and I wanted to. I'm frustrated about this conversation because I've been watching the media since Donald Trump got so-called elected. I think that it was a coup, to tell you the truth. I think that it is a direction that the Republican Party and the conservatives have been very actively organizing for for decades. Um, uh, it, it, to me, it's, it's a rigged election in the sense that 
the Republicans, especially ALEC, ALEC, or uh, American Legislative uh, Educational Council, I think is what that stands for, yes. they have been pumping Republicans into high-powered places all over the country. Uh, Democrats have lost about 700 seats na- nationwide. Uh, governors, legislators, um, uh, Arius, can I ask you something? And, why Why is that a coup? Why isn't that just good, solid, grassroots politics? Yeah, there are billionaires involved in funding it. It's it's so uh, one-sided and so prejudiced. It's not just good politics. It's actually devious because there's so much nastiness involved. There's so much money that is being pumped into these uh, people and so much money that is being used to manipulate the entire system. Um, in in Detroit, apparently 700 uh, districts had fewer uh, voting uh, booths okay. than necessary, and um, many of the voting machines did not work. Okay, Arius, I'm going to... couple of hours, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it goes on and on, all the way back to... Uh, Arius, excuse me, I'm going to have to cut you off because the time is running out. I think we got the point. We'll let Chuck say something if he wishes. Thanks a lot for your call, Chuck. Well, I I don't want to delve into conspiracy theories, but I I will say that, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell, first or second year of the United States Senate, uh, when when, uh, Obama had been elected the first time, stated as my primary goal is to make sure that that Barack Obama is a one-term president and then proceeded to execute politics to that effect that's not a conspiracy it was an open open stated strategy and they did it and and uh, over time this is a part of what we got let me uh, ask one more question with you do you still consider yourself a liberal is that still a good term as far as you're concerned i i i will get beaten up by people like bart dame about the difference between progressive and 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 liberal I have always leaned left. I, uh, I I think I I've gotten a little older, and I like pragmatic answers. I like answers to things, not just ideology. But oh, for sure, I I'm an admitted uh, leaning left kind of guy, and you can call me liberal or progressive. Uh, doesn't it doesn't make a difference? And I just hope that what happens over over the next year is that reasonable conversation about what's important in terms of foreign policy and social justice aren't impacted by the ideologies. Chuck, thanks a lot for being our guest today. Chuck Friedman, the Democratic strategist and activist, been our guest today on Town Square. This is Neil Milner sitting in for Bethlehem Kozlowitz saying have a good evening. Thanks for listening. Good night.